Now, who's keen to hear about... This is the last, today's the last week of our End of the World series, so we really must be getting to the end of the world. Uh, so please welcome Pastor Chris. Give him a warm welcome to the stage as he leads us in. I'm excited to hear what's coming. We couldn't quite queue it up on the computer, but yeah, this will work. Awesome. Okay, thank you guys. You may be seated for the end of the world. Um, but before we actually get to the end of the world, I wanted to add something else to uh, uh, what Nathan was saying about the drought offering. Have you got that envelope still there? Uh, we put out the details up on the screen of how, how to give through our church, but on the envelope itself... It gives you uh, a way of giving electronically directly to C3 Global, either through Tithely or through bank transfer. And we did that, and there's an explanation on the back of where the funds are going to. Because we would like it, if you are in a workplace uh, that you know people who would uh, love to give to drought relief but perhaps haven't yet, uh, we encourage you to take one of these, uh, one or two or as many as you can get of these envelopes to your workplaces, schools or, or wherever you go during the week. And uh, if you know people who would like to give, give them one of these and they will be able to give using the instructions on that or they may even give you cash in the envelope to bring back uh, next Sunday. So uh, they'll be up the back there uh, as you leave. So grab one of those. Uh, we would love to uh, help anybody who wants to give to the drought relief the chance to do so. Awesome. Okay. Now, I apologise to any visitors here this morning because this is part four of a, of a four-part series on Revelation and so you've missed three, three quarters of, of the story. So it may be a little on the uh, confusing side. But to help us uh, with this, we're going to have a look at the final portion of the Bible Project video on the book of Revelation. So if you turn your eyes to the screen, let's... Uh, See what happens at the end. Now, John has fully unpacked the message of the Lamb's unsealed scroll. And now he goes back to expand on three key themes that he's introduced earlier. The fall of Babylon, the final battle to defeat evil, and the arrival of the new Jerusalem. And each one of these explores the final coming of God's kingdom from a different angle. So first, the fall of Babylon. An angel shows John a stunning woman who's dressed like a queen, but she's drunk with the blood of the martyrs and of all innocent people. She's riding the dragon beast from the sign visions. It's a symbol of the rebellious nations. And she's called Babylon, the prostitute. Now, the detailed symbols of this vision, they would be very clear to John's first readers. He's personifying the military and economic power of the Roman Empire, but he's also doing more. In this vision, John has blended together words and images from every single Old Testament passage about the downfall of ancient Babylon, Tyre, and Edom. John showing how Rome is simply the newest version of the Old Testament archetype of humanity in rebellion against God. They come together and form nations that exalt their own economic and military security into a false God. This isn't something limited to the past, or the future. It's a portrait of the human condition throughout history. And Babylon's will come and go leading up to the day when Jesus returns to replace Babylon with his kingdom. But how will Jesus' kingdom come? 
up to this point, the day of the Lord has been depicted as a day of fire or earthquake or harvest. And now it's depicted as a final battle and it's told twice. It results in the vindication of the martyrs. Now John takes us back to the sixth bowl where the nations were gathered together to oppose God. And all of a sudden, Jesus appears. He's the great hero. He's the word of God riding on a white horse and he's ready to conquer the world's evil. But pay attention. He's covered with blood before the battle even begins, and that's because it's his own. And his only weapon is the sword of his mouth. It's an image adapted from Isaiah. John's telling us that Armageddon will not be a bloodbath. Rather, the same Jesus who shed his own blood for his enemies now comes proclaiming justice. He will hold accountable those who refuse to repent of the ways that they participate in the ruin of God's good world. And the destructive hellfire that they've unleashed in God's world justly becomes their own God-appointed destiny. After this, John sees a vision of Jesus' followers who have been murdered by Babylon, and they're brought back to life, and they reign with the Messiah for 1,000 years. Then after this, the dragon who inspired humanity's rebellion against God rallies the nations of the world together to rebel against God's kingdom. But before God's throne of justice, they all face the consequences of eternal defeat. And so the forces of spiritual evil and everyone who doesn't want to participate in God's kingdom are destroyed. They're given what they want to exist by themselves and for themselves. And so the dragon and Babylon and all who choose them are eternally quarantined, never again able to corrupt God's new creation. Now, there's a lot of debate about the relationship of the 1,000 years to these two battles. There are some who think it refers to a literal chronological sequence. Jesus' return, followed by a thousand-year kingdom on earth called the millennium, followed by God's final judgment. Other people think that the thousand years are a symbol of Jesus' and the martyrs' present victory over spiritual evil, and that the two battles depict Jesus' future return from two different angles. Whichever view you take, the main point is clear. When Jesus returns as king, he will deal with evil forever, and he'll vindicate those who have been faithful to him. The book concludes with a final vision of the marriage of heaven and earth. An angel shows John a stunning bride that symbolizes the new creation that has come forever to join God and his covenant people. God announces that he's come to live with humanity forever and that he's making all things new. John's vision here is a kaleidoscope of Old Testament promises. This place is a new heavens and earth, a restored creation that's healed of the pain and evil of human history. It's also a new garden of Eden, the paradise of eternal life with God. But it's not simply a return back to the garden. It's a step forward into a new Jerusalem, a great city where human cultures and all their diversity work together in peace and harmony before God. And in the most surprising twist of all, there's no temple building in the new creation because the presence of God and the Lamb that were once limited to the temple now permeate every square inch of the new world. And there's a new humanity there fulfilling the calling placed on them all the way back on page one of the Bible to rule as God's image, to partner together with God in taking this creation into new and uncharted territory. And so ends John's apocalypse and the epic storyline of the whole Bible. John did not write this book as a secret code for you to decipher the timetable of Jesus' return. It's a symbolic vision that brought hope and challenge to the seven first century churches and every generation of Christians since. It reveals history's pattern and God's promise that every human kingdom eventually becomes Babylon and must be resisted in the power of the slain lamb. 
But there's a promise that Jesus, who loved and died for this world, will not let Babylon go unchecked. He will return one day to remove evil from his good world and make all things new. And that is a promise that should motivate faithfulness in every generation of God's people until the king returns. That's what the book of Revelation is all about. Right, my work is done. Sure, everybody understood all of that and is uh, down with the, the book of Revelation. Uh, if you would like to revisit any of that, if you just Google the Bible Project, um, the videos for this are available uh, free to watch on the web. And uh, there are actually, although I split it into four, there are two 11-minute uh, videos which cover the, the book of Revelation. And I've watched them at least a dozen times. And uh, there's still more to learn. So, this morning, before I delve into the, the main uh, topic that I, that I want to talk about regarding the book of Revelation, I, I want to answer a question. I was going to have a Q&A &A this morning and just ask people to write in and submit questions about Revelation and things they didn't understand or things I've missed out. Um, but I thought perhaps if I just answered one question that people often ask, and, and the most common one is, where's the rapture? Neither the Bible Project nor me, or nor I, have mentioned the rapture at all. And uh, surely um, the rapture is a key part of Revelation, including all those arguments about whether it's pre-tribulation, mid-tribulation, or post-tribulation. Because these things are, are, are the key of our, our modern interpretation of the book of Revelation. It's got to be the rapture. Well, interestingly enough, the term rapture is not mentioned in Revelation at all. And the source for the idea of the rapture actually comes from a totally different and unrelated scripture. Uh, if we turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, this is where we find it. And he says, And now, dear brothers and sisters, we want you to know what will happen to the believers who have died, so that you will not grieve like people who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and was raised to life again, we also believe that when Jesus returns, God will bring back with him the believers who have died. We tell you this directly from the Lord. We are who are still living when the Lord returns, will not meet him ahead of those who have died. For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a commanding shout, with the voice of the archangel, with the trumpet call of God. And first, the believers who have died will rise from their graves. Then together with them, we who are still alive and remain on the earth will be caught up in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And then we will be with the Lord forever. So it's not in the book of Revelation. It's in the book of Thessalonians. And the reason that Paul put it in there was that Christians in Thessalonica were grieving over the unexpected deaths of members of their congregation. Apparently, doubts had arisen among them regarding the fate of those Christians who had died before Christ returned. Would they miss out on the glorious events of Christ's second coming and the resurrection? And Paul assured them in this way that God would save those who had already died as well as the living. We've also got to remember here that Paul... That John was writing to the churches in Asia Minor, which is modern-day Turkey, and Paul was writing to the Thessalonians, which is in Greece. And so it's fairly unlikely that they had access to each other's letters at this point, um, so a reference to 1 Thessalonians 4.13 wouldn't be relevant as they didn't actually have the luxury of the New Testament bound in fake leather with a concordance at the back and all those footnotes. And so it does seem a bit of a stretch to tie 1 Thessalonians into the book of Revelation. Um, so that begs the question, where did, this, where did the idea of the rapture come from? 
Well, it's actually accredited mainly to a guy called John Nelson Darby, who was a 19th century theologian. And uh, his pre-tribulation view of the rapture was picked up by a man called C.I. Schofield, who brought out the Schofield Reference Bible, which was very popular in the early uh, 20th century. And he put in his footnotes, and only in the footnotes, mind you, uh, this view. Uh, but his Bible was widely distributed in England and America from about 1909 onwards. And many Protestants who read the Schofield Reference Bible uncritically accepted its footnotes and adopted the rapture doctrine, even though no Christian had heard of it in the previous 1800 years of church history. So, whether you believe in the rapture or not isn't actually relevant, but if you're studying the book of Revelation, it isn't mentioned. Uh, a lot of people uh, point to the fact that uh, from about halfway through Revelation there are no particular references to the church and therefore what happened to the church, did it disappear? But there are theological uh, answers to that question which I'm not actually going to bore you with now. So there you go. One of the most popular things about the book of Revelation isn't even in the book of Revelation. So who, who knew that? Who'd read it? No. I say, you really should go and read the book of Revelation. <laughs> okay, the, one of the exciting things about the book of Revelation, uh, and when we talk about a book, we've got to remember that when I say book, what I mean is scroll of parchment. <laughs> because there, there were no books. The, the Bible, the book that we see today, didn't exist until about well, several centuries after, after Jesus died. And so the, the fascinating thing about the structure of our Bible now is, is that Revelation is the last book of the Bible. And so we have bookends. We have Genesis at one end and we have Revelation at the other. And if, who's read the book of Revelation? Come on, I need a bit of support here. Okay, and who's read the, what did I say then? Re, who's read Genesis? Right, so approximately equal. Does Revelation sound anything like Genesis? No, it's, but would you be surprised to learn that Revelation is actually the perfect bookend to the book of Genesis? It is actually, the book of Revelation is the book of anti-Genesis. Actually, that sounds like a real word. Anti, antigens, yes. Well, yes, let's not go into medical history. Um, so, you think about it. Um, the book of Genesis talks about, first of all, the Garden of Eden. Oh, well, the Old Testament, not just the book of Genesis, but that we get the Garden of Eden, and then we get the Israelites establishing a temple. And then they, they build the temple in Jerusalem. The, then there's the establishment of a new covenant with the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And then we have the church is brought into existence. If we look at the book of Revelation, it starts off by addressing the growing church. It lifts the profile of Jesus to new heights. It establishes a new Jerusalem. It does away with the temple and it brings back the Garden of Eden. So it actually is exactly the opposite to the Old Testament. It actually brings it all together in one book and brings a culmination of God's plan. If we look in Revelation 21 and verse 1, it says, I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the old heaven and the old earth had disappeared and the sea was also gone. It's an interesting theological point, which we don't have time to go into. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down from God out of heaven like a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. 
I heard a loud shout from the throne saying, look, God's home is now among his people. He will live with them and they will be his people. God himself will be with them. He will wipe every tear from their eyes and there will be no more death or sorrow or crying or pain. All of these things are gone forever. And the one sitting on the throne said, look, I am making everything new. And then he said to me, talking to John, write this down for what I am to tell you is trustworthy and true. And he also said, it is finished. I'm the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To all those who are thirsty, I will give freely from the springs of water of life. All who are victorious will inherit all these blessings and I will be their God and they will be my children. So here we see the new Jerusalem, the details of which are extremely important in both the details John sees and the details that are missing. First of all, we see God's plan to bring his first and second covenant together. Because remember that in the, in the Old Testament, God came for the Jews for the, and, and the nation of Israel. But in the New Testament, he came for the Gentiles. And it appears in some ways that he's abandoned the Jews. But here, if we look at the New Jerusalem, it says in Revelation 21 verse 12, the city was broad and high with 12 gates guarded by 12 angels, and the names of the 12 tribes of Israel were written on the gates. There were three gates on each side, east, north, south, and west, and the wall of the city had 12 foundation stones, and on them were written the names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. So we see that in in this picture, he's drawing together the Old Testament and the New Testament. The tribes of Israel versus the apostles of Jesus Christ are coming together to form the New Jerusalem. And then we see the dimensions of this city. In chapter 12, it says, The city wall was broad and high. He's not kidding here. With 12 gates guarded by 12 angels. Oh, hang on, no, sorry. Verse 15. I was going backwards then. The angel who talked to me held in his hand a gold measuring stick to measure the city, its gates and its wall. When he measured it, he found it was a square as wide as it was long. In fact, its length and width and height were each... 1,400 miles. don't know what sort of measuring stick he had. And then he measured the walls and found them to be 216 feet thick according to the human standard used by the angels. In our modern terms, that's 2,253 kilometres long, wide and high. To put that in perspective, the International Space Station orbits at 400 kilometres. One rotation of the Earth later and smack... The International Space Station has collided with the walls of the New Jerusalem. And uh, so this is one of those things where we have to look at the symbolism in this book and recognise that unless the New Earth is a heck of a lot bigger than our current Earth, um, then the measurements and everything for for New Jerusalem are actually symbolic. Um, Which brings us to the next important feature, which is the temple. But before we go there... John tells us he saw the new Jerusalem coming out of heaven. So in the book of Revelation, can you tell me how many people actually go to heaven? Has anybody ever heard of this nursery rhyme? As I was going to St. Ives, I met a man with seven wives. Each wife had seven sacks, each sack had seven cats. Each cat had seven rats, rats, cats, sacks and wives. How many were going to St. Ives? Now, of course, the correct answer is one, because you were going to St. Ives, not them. But if you actually wanted to know how many people were going away for St. Ives, there's actually a formula for it. If you'd like to put that up. So, 
if you want to work that out, you can, you can find out how many people were going away from St. Ives. Um, that's actually nothing to do with my message. I thought that was just <laughs> weird and interesting. Uh, the answer is about 8,000 and something, I think, if you use that formula. If you want to use the formula, speak to me afterwards. John is actually the only person in the book of Revelation to go to heaven. The only heaven that other people see is the heaven that has come to earth. It's one of those interesting theological puzzles that uh, points to heaven as being situated in the presence of God rather than a geological location in either a physical or a spiritual sense. Even the New Jerusalem, which is described quite glowingly in terms of its physical dimensions and its beauty, is also referred to as a bride, which is a common description of the church. So you've got to ask yourself, is New Jerusalem a place or a people? Is it a geographical entity or a state of mind? You thought I was going to make this easy on you, didn't you? So, uh, anyway, back to the temple. Revelation 21:22 says, I saw no temple in the city, for the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. And the city has no need of sun or moon, for the glory of God illuminates the city, and the Lamb is its light. The nations will walk in its light, and the kings of the world will enter the city in all their glory. Its gates will never be closed at the end of the day because there's no night there. And all the nations will bring their glory and honour into the city. Nothing evil will be allowed to enter, nor anyone who practises shameless idolatry and dishonesty, but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. What? Jerusalem without a temple? Yeah, well, don't forget, the reason for the temple in the first place has now come to earth. It's a bit like what I said about communion. There is no need for a specific place to go to find God, because God is there. God is the light of that city. Um, what the angel showed John next, oh, hang on, let, let, he goes one step further. So we've got the new Jerusalem, we've got the picture, uh, and to the Israelites and the early Christians, that, that would have meant a huge amount, because they had witnessed the destruction of Jerusalem and the destruction of all that they held holy and believed in. And so this, this idea of a new Jerusalem is really exciting to them. But he goes one step further. And in Revelation 22 verse 1, he says, The angel showed me a river with the water of life, clear as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb. It flowed down the centre of the main street. On each side of the river grew a tree of life, bearing 12 crops of fruit with a fresh crop each month. The leaves were used for medicine to heal the nations. No longer will there be a curse upon anything, for the throne of God and the Lamb will be there, and his servants will worship him. And they will see his face, and his name will be written on their foreheads. And there will be no night there, no need for lamps or sun, for the Lord God will shine in them, and they will reign forever and ever. And so now we're getting even further back, because the angel has shown John the, river, the water of the river of life, which is described as being clear as crystal, not to indicate so much that you can see through it, but that it's actually pure and without, him, without, uh, without blemish. And so next, and continuing with this theme of, of a restored Eden, John sees on either side of the river the once forbidden, now fruit-bearing tree of life. Because remember there were two trees in the Garden of Eden? There was the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And we were allowed to eat from the tree of life. But when we ate from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil... The tree of life was banned to us as well. And so here we see 
Something banned to us from almost the beginning of time is now planted by rivers of living water, remind you of Psalm 1, and it, the crop that it brings is, is a fresh one every month, and it's yielding new fruit, which is available to everybody. So we've got a tree that was lost to mankind in the first Eden as the main source of nourishment in the renewed Eden. Interesting, the leaves of the trees are for the healing of the nations. Not to individuals, because who knows that some trees have, that leaves have healing properties for people. They can heal a lot of topical diseases. But here he says it's for healing of the nations. And so, I mean, that's sort of a, a level above just healing individuals. You can heal nations with these, with these leaves. And the nations are... I mean, who know, we know what nations are like. Nations are creations of man so that we can butt heads with one another. I mean, we have something uh, in, in The Hague or, or in New York somewhere called the United Nations. That's just a convenient place for the nations to get together to butt heads with one another. Um, it's not actually terribly united. But here we have the actual, real United Nations. Uh, people who have historically been at odds with one another, often in warfare, and they come together... And the, the leaves of this tree promote actual national peace over the whole world. So this is the ultimate imagery of a restored Eden, whose original curse was the enmity between man and woman and between the two of them and the snake. Enmity that continues to this day. And he says, there will be no curse the enmity between man and woman, the pain of childbirth, all of these things which happened to mankind when we were banished from the Garden of Eden is gone. And so, in the final chapter of Revelation, John completes the picture of a fully restored relationship between God and his people. It's strange, such a weird book, and yet it is a book full of so much vision and future and hope of what God has planned for his people. We need to read it more. We need to be encouraged more. We need to be inspired more. Because the book of Revelation is just that. It's a book of the revelation of Jesus Christ. It's a book of the revelation of the plans and purposes mentioned in Jeremiah that he has for us. And if we read it and understand it, we come to realize that the plans and the purposes that God has for us are good. Really, really good. And that our future, our hope, the reason, and, and, and for the people in, in, in first century churches there, this was, this was what they needed to hold on to because they were about to endure and undergo persecution which was even, even to death. And they needed a good reason to hang on to their faith. And so John paints a picture here of what Jesus' plans for our future are. Whether we make it to the second coming of Jesus or not, there is a glorious future for all believers. Jesus has our hearts, our, our souls, our very being in his hand. And he has shown us here a future that we can actually look forward to and believe in. To hold on to our faith in a world that doesn't, it doesn't sit well with. A lot of people struggle with the Christian faith because it doesn't believe the things that they want to believe. Um, most, I mean... This is, this is an out-of-the-box picture. I mean, who talks about cities 2,000 kilometres high? 
I mean, there'll be no unemployment. Think of all the builders. <laughs> Except I think God built that by himself, so perhaps not, don't spread that one around. <laughs> but we can see why, when the Bible was put together, the book of Revelation was put at the end. Apart from things like um, arguments about the rapture and, and things like that, the book of Revelation in the 3rd century AD was nearly removed from the Bible. Because even in that, that distance between John writing it and encouraging the churches in, in Asia Minor uh, with his words, and two centuries later they had so lost the understanding of the symbolism that he used that when they read Revelation they said, this is a really strange book, let's throw it out. Aren't you glad they didn't? There was a lot of fighting about that. And although you know, in modern times we, we, ha we don't... It's often one of these things where people say we've, re we've refound these skills that the ancients had that have been lost. And that there's, a, there's a, a mythology that goes around archaeology that one day we're actually going to find something which exposes a civilization that has a culture and a, and a technology that's even greater than ours. Has anybody, any, anybody got that feeling? There's, you know, people are just waiting for, for somebody to find a ray gun buried in a pyramid. <laughs> So that they can say aliens came to earth and they had a much... We, we get caught up because that, that's, that's a nice you know, fantasy idea to get involved in. But the thing is that, that in, in our modern day study of the Bible, the things that we've discovered are painfully pieced together uh, ideas from literature that has shown that first century Christians didn't have a better knowledge of the book of Revelation because they were more intelligent than us. They were closer to the problem. And I think the thing we have to be very wary of as 2,000-year-old Christians, not personally, um, is that we're, we're a long way from the problems that they talk about here. And our understanding of these problems is a long way from the understanding of these people. And so we have to take on board what it actually means for us as well as knowing what it meant for those people. And so the symbology that we see in Revelation... Because we're still here and we're not in heaven, because Jesus hasn't returned yet, are a hope and the substance of our faith that one day this is going to happen. That one day Jesus will return. We will see these wonders. Now, whether we'll actually see gates with single pearls, I mean, a lot of people are really hoping that's the case because can you imagine the size of the oyster that made that pearl? Some people are going to be on... on Seafood, you know, one oyster could feed, you know, Australia for a month. Those of us who don't like seafood will have to find something else, but it's, it's an amazing picture. And so the book of Revelation, I think, um, and, and, I'll, and I'm going to finish with this, is something that in the past I think we've used to encourage people to accept Jesus Christ by using it as a turn or burn mechanism. Look at the horrible things that are going to happen to people who don't believe in Jesus in the book of Revelation. And who knows that most people don't respond well to that. But there's actually a subtext and another story running through that that says, look at what happens to the people who maintain their faith in Jesus Christ. Look at the promises that are made for us as a church, as a body of believers. If we hold on to our faith, if we can help people 
get a better life, if we can help people get on top of their physical, mental, emotional problems, if we can actually form a, a community of believers which behaves differently to the world, which has different outcomes, different attitudes. They're the things we're fighting for because of what Jesus has promised us. Can I ask you to stand? The book of Revelation talks a lot about new things. There's the new temple, which is us. There's the new Jerusalem. There's the new Eden. There's the new tree of life. There's all, all sorts of new things. And we know that our God is a God of new things, even here and now. That we can, if we look at the character of God, he doesn't dwell on the old things. He's always wanting new things in our life. And you may be here this morning and you've, you've heard this message or you've heard several messages and you're thinking, what, what is it about Jesus that I, I need to do something about? What is it? Is it just words? Is it just a feeling? What do I have to do to have Jesus putting new things into my life? And the answer is simple. You just have to ask him. And here in this church, we do that by, by saying a prayer. Just saying, Jesus, I accept you as my Lord and Saviour. From this point forward, I want you to be in my life. And I'm going to follow you. And if you've never said that prayer, I'd like to say that with you this morning. And if you, you may have said it before, but you've sort of thought, well, I'm not fulfilling what I actually spoke. So perhaps it's a good idea to say it again, to reaffirm my connection with Jesus Christ. And so can I just get everyone to close their eyes and bow their heads? And if you'd like to do that this morning, and I won't embarrass you by making you do it yourself, we'll actually, as a church, say this prayer together and uh, you can speak to somebody afterwards about the decision that you've made. But if that's you, while nobody's looking around, can you just raise your hand so that I can see it? And I'll make sure that we pray that prayer together this morning to invite Jesus into your life. Is there anyone here at all? Just raise your hand nice and high. Awesome. Can we open our eyes? Can we just pray one small prayer before we finish? Repeat after me. Lord, Give me the strength to follow you despite persecution, suffering, and injustice. You are my Lord, and I follow you for the rest of my days. Amen. Awesome. We're changing tack next week apart from Father's Day. Uh, our next series starts after that. And uh, I'm not going to tell you anything about it until then. <laughs>